We've seen our share of gimmick matches. Mask versus title matches, street fights, even a match you could only win by jamming your foe into a funerary box, a casket if you will. But the granddaddy of them all is the steel cage match, dating all the way back to 1937. The idea is simple. In order to contain a rivalry that has gotten way out of hand, both men have to be locked into a cage with only the winner walking out under his own power. It's the original nuclear option of ending pro wrestling feuds. Today, I bring you perhaps the greatest cage match ever contested, with one additional wrinkle. Not only would both men be locked inside the cage until there was a winner, but victory could only come by forcing your opponent to say those two magic words, I quit. It's brutal, it's grotesque, and it's beautiful. Today on I Hate Wrestling, it's Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard, Blood and Guts. Stephen, the train, Graham, welcome back to the show. Hi. 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 Are we doing Mr. Popo? Is that what's happening? <laughs> Pecking order. Pecking order. Pecking order. <laughs> That's Popo stuff. <laughs> That's what we should do. We should watch the uh, Team Four Star where they do the uh, the wrestling episodes with I'll, Raccoon. With Raccoon, yes. <laughs> And it rhymes with doom. Boom. <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah, they, they, they had a, a pretty good... Honestly, the best part of that and the most realistic part of that was how they did a... Like a fast food style... Get away from there. Yeah, that's right. By the way, everybody, my cats are in the recording studio with me today, which is a bad idea, but uh, they're in here anyway, and uh, you're going to occasionally hear me say, get away from there, which is to, uh, <laughs> which is to save you, uh, the radio audience at home in Radio Land, from hearing the distracting sound of a cat purring happily. So anyway, I think what they really nailed in the, uh, the Team Four Star Dragon Ball Z abridged Namekamania episode is oh. like the fast food commercial that they played during it because it's 100% Sonic. <laughs> I remember that now. Yeah. They call it Spacey's, but it's Sonic. Like, right down to the advertising, the voiceover, like this. And it's like, yep, that's Sonic, 100%. It's good food in space. And I'm like, yep, you fucking nailed it. You people have watched this show before. <laughs> what is your favorite... What is your favorite bizarre uh, WWE fast food product placement? Uh, well, of course, like our, our joke for years has been Skittles. Skittles? Um, Skittles. Skittles? God, by God, they're fruity! Uh, you like the Skittles, kids? <laughs> On an inside joke, it'd probably be Jerry Lawler offering us cake. That's true. That's true. Well, once upon a time, we went to a wrestling show and uh, and professional wrestling legend Jerry the King Lawler uh, offered us cake. Um, he didn't, like, make the cake. He just knew that it was there. And we asked him where the cake came from, and he didn't know. And it was like a wedding cake. It was like a tiered cake. Yeah. 
So we're like in a high school gym. We're meeting Jerry Lawler. He's like, hey guys, there's cake over there in the corner. I'm like, and yeah, there's a fucking tiered cake. And you can just go and get some. It was a good meet and greet. Yeah. Right after we asked Jerry if he would shave his back for Candace Michelle. Did we ask him that? Pretty sure we did. I'm pretty sure you did. I did not. (laughs) Anyway. One of the many things that you've said to wrestlers that you shouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) This is not that podcast, sir. Ah, sorry. I asked you a very important question. There's, there's, There's a deep well to draw from here in terms of pro wrestling fast food product placement. And I want to mention the time that Enzo Amore wanted to fuck chicken. That is true. You remember that? It was like the extra crispy whatever the fuck from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And Enzo like stole the bucket and was like getting ready to party down on it with his penis. And that was a thing that happened on television. Also, there was a weird thing where like Tyson Kidd was eating chicken fries instead of having sex with his wife. Who in WWE wants to fuck chicken? What is it? (laughs) But you remember that too, right? Of course, yeah. Like, Natalia was like, hey, we should go home after... And Natalia and Tyson Kidd are wrestlers who are married, by the way. Uh, all listeners out there. And Natalia was like... Maybe it was like a Valentine's Day episode or something. And she was, like, implying that they should go home and fuck after the show. But he was like, no thanks. I got these delicious BK chicken fries. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know who else would record a podcast surrounded by cats? Those, Natalia and Tyson Kidd. Yeah, those two. All the hearts, actually. Remember that? We talked about it in your last episode where they, they were, like, filming Bret Hart in his house and he's just got a cat on his lap. Yeah. Um, also, very important, I want to say underrated, uh, there's two times that Subway made an appearance. And one was the time where Seth Rollins was sitting on a couch doing an interview unrelated to Subway and there was a Subway sandwich sitting next to him on the couch. Do you remember this? He's just sitting on the couch, and there's, like, a perfectly wrapped Subway sandwich sitting on the couch next to him, facing the camera with the label out. And the other time, you remember the other time that Subway was featured on WWE programming, surely. Of course I do. We also talked about this for years, which is the time that (laughs) CM Punk, (laughs) in the midst of his uh, straight-edge cult leader gimmick, saw a, a particular celebrity spokesperson... In the audience, and and said to his hench people, Luke, Serena, go out into the audience and get me Jared from Subway. <laughs> Bring me Jared from Subway. Yes. <laughs> and then Triple H and Shawn Michaels had to run out and save Jared from Subway from CM Punk. And uh, uh, later on, they were unable to save him from the FBI. In hindsight, CM Punk should have, like, cleansed him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we should have, he should have known something was up. We all should have known something was up with Jared from Subway, right? Like, in retrospect, that's, like, one of those things. It's like, yep, that's our B. That's all our B. Mm-hmm. We should not have given this man money or opportunity. Um, gosh. Anyway, you're here to talk about wrestling and not uh, famous fast food rapists. Um, you're here today to talk about a very legendary match that I don't know that you've ever seen. I have not. 
and I don't, I don't particularly care for the Magnum. You don't like Magnum. I don't not like him, but I didn't care for him either. He's not somebody I'd go back and watch his matches. Right. Now, the fact that you don't like Magnum makes you diametrically opposed to, oh, every person in the American South in the 1980s. This dude, Mm -hmm. we're talking about Magnum TA, a professional wrestler named Terry Allen, who looked kind of like Tom Selleck, and because of that was given the name Magnum TA. Only because he had a thick mustache. He had a thick mustache. Like, not, not quite Rick Rude level, but up there. Definitely up there. And a blonde mullet, yeah, to sort of contrast him with Rick Rude's dusky locks. But here's the difference between Rick Rude and Magnum TA, was that Rick Rude hated you as a fan, and Magnum TA loved you as a fan. He was out there uh, slapping kids' hands, and, well, I, I guess... Before we talk about the homework, which I want to do because it really sets up the personalities of these two guys really well, the other guy in this match is Tully Blanchard. Now, you're more familiar with Tully Blanchard and a bigger fan of Tully Blanchard, right? I am a fan of Tully Blanchard, actually, yes. Tully was the longtime tag team partner of Arn Anderson, who is one of my all-time favorites and I believe one of your all-time favorites as well. Absolutely, and he is also related to, well, not uh, blood-related, but he is, his character has a relationship with the character of Ric Flair, the sort of be-all, end-all of 1980s wrestling scumbags. So the rivalry between these two guys, this privileged scumbag heel and this beloved blue-collar challenger is a pretty cut-and-dried traditional wrestling story. And where it gets really interesting is, I think, the psychology of why these two guys in particular hate each other so much. Because Tully Blanchard also feuded with Dusty Rhodes and Barry Windham and Ricky Steamboat and, and, you know, the other sort of white-meat baby faces of the day. And American Starship Eagle. American Starship Eagle, right. <laughs> we'll get to him in a second. And, of course, Magnum also had relationships. You know, he, he was in a tag team with Dusty Rhodes, and he you know, was sort of agreed upon that he was going to one day challenge and defeat Ric Flair, like that was a thing that everybody knew was going to happen. And the fact that these two guys in this whole sort of ecosystem of wrestling personalities are such perfect foils for each other is kind of the story of this match. So I sent you three pieces of homework. They, they were two short matches and very short. very short matches and one promo, which is sort of the first time they even say in the promo that this is the first time that Tully Blanchard is seeing footage of Magnum TA. Did you catch that? I did not, truth be told. So, I guess we'll start with the promo first. So, mm-hmm. what, what did you think of the promo? Uh, truth be told, I didn't really get what um, Tully was doing. To me, 
so Tully has always been like the like the kind of like the smarmy gross Wall Street heel type of person. Right. Reaganite um, type. Yeah. Like the like not the top level boss in like a an eighties movie, but the, the mid level guy, the good guy has to get through first. Right. Exactly right. He always has been like that for me. And then here he was like kind of like dressed as a cowboy. Yeah. Say. He had like a hat on and a little bandana and like just like a white kind of tassel jacket or looked, whatever. Looked a little Terry Funk. Yeah. So to me, like when he dressed like that, it of course threw me off because I only ever saw him like with a scotch and rocks in his hands and like always like <laughs> a nice dress up shirt with the with the buttons at the top open, even though he doesn't have the chest for it. Right. It's and, like it's like seeing John Cena dressed in a clown costume or something. Yeah. Like, and, I know what that guy, I know that guy, but why is he wearing that? Yeah, and to me, it kind of seemed like he was, I don't know, he was trying to, and I don't know if this is what he was trying to say to me, but he was trying to, as sort of like a heel dressed down to be more common. He was trying, to me, it seemed like he was trying to get like, you know how JBL had that whole heel run where he was going around and high-fiving kids and kissing babies and stuff? Yes. But at the same time, he was that asshole heel the entire time? That's yep. what I was getting from it. Like, he was pretending to be on the people's side and being the blue-collar worker type of thing and um, and try to try to gain some sympathy from the crowd. And then, to me, when they started showing Magnum TA as, you know, this renegade Lorenzo Lamas dude yes. and his motorcycle just making out with women and riding around shirtless that to me was like oh no this was the real open road blue collar guy so it kind of made him look like um like it kind of po- made him look like the bad guy in roadhouse Ma- you know? make, make him look like a poser <laughs> yeah so i think part of what you're saying is very astute so what tully when he's coming out dressed like that the the interviewer's like, so what's this about? Yeah. <laughs> and he goes and he goes on this little rant about how he's the all the great wrestlers from Texas. And he talks about the funks and he talks about the great chief Wahoo McDaniel. And he goes, and you know who else is from Texas? Tully Blanchard. So it's almost like he's trying to put himself over as this legendary rough and tumble texas brawler which he's absolutely not he is from texas but you know he's from san antonio sean michaels is from san antonio legendary pretty boy sean michaels <laughs> you know he's not uh he's not one of these rough and tumble cowboy types he's just not and he never has been mm-hmm. and he's talking about you know they ask him at this time he's the television champion which is Definitely an important role to have. It means you're on TV all the time. You're very visible, but you're definitely nowhere near the top of the card. You know, being television champion is a stepping stone, but it's a stepping stone on up. And Tully is trying to get, you know, everybody wants to get to the world title eventually. But generally speaking, the next step is the U.S. title. So Tully's trying to get there. And they're sort of asking him about all these contenders he might have to face in this sort of lower tier as they're all trying to scramble up to the next level, if that makes sense. And one of the names that they mention is Magnum TA. And Tully says, I'm hearing this name Magnum TA a lot. I don't think I've ever actually seen him wrestle, 
do you have any footage of Magnum TA? And they say, yeah, I think so. And they roll this footage and it's barely footage of him wrestling. He hits like three suplexes, but it's mostly him driving his motorcycle around shirtless and just grossly making out with these barfly women. Then it's him like working out in a weird, like sort of Rocky three moment where there's like really tight close-ups on his pecs. When it's all done, Tully's like, well, uh, it looks like it looks to me like Magnum is spending too much time in the gym and not enough time in the ring, which is a fair statement. If you're trying to promote somebody as a great wrestler, maybe show them in the ring a little bit. But at the same time, he's like he makes this this crack about, oh, well, it looks like he's got quite a body, but it's the wrestling skill that matters, not what his body looks like. Yeah, then he calls out Ricky Steamboat, one of the undisputed greatest technical wrestlers who ever lived. <laughs> yeah, he even does it like underhandedly. He's like, <laughs> the bodybuilder types tend to not get things done, Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the thing I wish they would do more, where people would just call out people that they weren't involved with. It makes the show feel more like a like a whole fictional universe. You know, nowadays in WWE, you never hear anybody say anything about somebody they're not directly involved with. But Ric Flair was constantly, you know, when he would come out and do his interviews, he would talk about everything that was happening on the show. And he would talk about all the baby faces and all the heels. And, you know, it made it feel like everybody was living in the same universe. And I feel like that's something that's missing nowadays. Yeah. Also, like one of the things in the video, they did show a few belly to bellies, which I'm guessing is his finish that's his finish um, he did a belly to belly to somebody and the clip that they use is him doing a belly to belly but throwing his opponent into the referee and knocking the referee out yeah. it's like why would you show that <laughs> it shows that he has like no control so i guess that brings us to the two matches that we saw to kind of get an idea of these two guys so you said the belly to belly that is Magnum TA's signature move. And in the match that we saw, it was almost like it was an answer to Tully Blanchard's criticism of Magnum TA, right? Because Tully was saying like, oh, you're just a bodybuilder and bodybuilders aren't real wrestlers and you better learn how to actually win a wrestling match, etc., etc., etc. And then when we see Magnum in the ring... He's in the ring with a guy who's clearly more muscular than he is. Uh, he's this guy, Josh Stroud, I think his name is. He looks like a bootleg Tony Atlas. Mm -hmm. Bell rings, and this guy, he's got, what, 10, 15 pounds of muscle on Magnum? Yeah. He's just flexing and showboating and trying to prove that he's Magnum's physical superior. And Magnum just stares at him, hustles up, and plants him with a belly-to-belly -belly that... Looked pretty badass. Like, he's putting some mustard on these suplexes. Yeah. And he just plants that guy and gets a three, and he's done. Magnum TA was on a Goldberg-ass tear as far as just beating guys in 10 seconds and leaving them laying. So, when we first hear about Magnum TA, Tully Blanchard says, oh, he's just a bodybuilder, doesn't know how to wrestle. And then when we see Magnum TA wrestle, he is facing off against an actual bodybuilder and destroying him in 10 seconds. Compare that with Tully Blanchard, <laughs> who has a 
much longer, it's still a short match, but a much longer match against American Starship Eagle Dan Spivey. <laughs> Who I would be remiss if I didn't mention was the tag team partner of American Starship Coyote, who would later go on to be our friend Razor Ramon from episode three, Never Forget the Name. So what, what were your impressions of this match as compared to the other match? Well, I was very, I was very saddened that Dan Spivey didn't actually do any, like, flapping. <laughs> <laughs> and that his finisher wasn't, like, a beak or talons or anything. It, it wasn't like the uh, the flying eagle move from Nacho Libre. Yeah, I mean it's it was right before the time where everybody had ridiculous names, but they didn't have to actually follow through with the gimmick, like Mantor. Right. <laughs> so I was ex- when I heard uh, American Starship Eagle, I thought he was gonna like jump off the top rope and call or something while doing a drop kick. But no, uh, he he actually didn't do anything cool, really. No, he didn't. Uh, the one thing I really got from that is that uh, Tully was really over as a heel. Oh, yeah. Everything he, everything he did, he just got booed the shit out of. And then everything Dan did, the crowd cheered like he was Hulk Hogan, almost. Like it was deafening. Yeah, and that, and let me just assure the listeners out there, this was not because of anything that Dan did. No. <laughs> <laughs> Tully, could have been, Tully could have been wrestling a broom out there. Yeah, this is because Tully, Tully is just amazing. So, um did a lot of classic heel stuff which um so the first thing i kind of noticed is you know when you get tied up in the ropes uh the referee's supposed to call for the break and referee wasn't calling it he was admonishing the referee which isn't really a heel move he's telling the referee to do his job which i guess is sort of like a heel move but the thing that he kept doing was running away and that's that's so perfect because as soon as the good guy starts building momentum you cut him off and you just roll out right and then you make the baby face chase you. Right. And, and you... every single time Tully did that, which was a few times in the match, he would cut out, he would get booed. Two seconds later, Dan started chasing him, and the crowd just erupts. And then Tully's backing out and trying to like stave him off and do a couple punches, and Dan keeps chasing. So he he really didn't get anything in. He was just, he was basically just a shit. <laughs> he yeah. just ran away. Uh, slapped Dance by me or a couple punches, and then at the end he did a dirty pin, and that's how he won. And that's that's perfectly sums up what a heel should be, uh, sort of like a coward and using every advantage to get his way. Right. I think it's interesting in that both of these guys were positioned against an opponent who's their physical superior. Right, Magnum is against a guy who's bigger and stronger than he is, and so is Tully. And Magnum's solution is to not worry about who's bigger and stronger, but concern himself with who's tougher and who, you know, is uh, more aggressive. So he just charges this guy who assumes he's going to have a strength advantage and just fucking plants him before that strength even has a chance to come into play. Tully, on the other hand, faced with a larger opponent, is immediately on the defensive, is immediately begging off, is is running, is hiding, is using every trick in the book to not have to address the fact that his opponent is his physical superior. And ultimately, he does win, 
by uh, rolling him up and putting his feet on the ropes and essentially stealing the match and then just splitting to the outside. So to look at these two stories in parallel, what you want as a fan more than anything is to see Tully Blanchard get in the ring with somebody like Magnum TA who can just shut him the fuck up. Who can just plant him and put him down and just make him eat his words because we have we should also say that the more successful Tully Blanchard gets, the more shit he talks. He's in that first promo that was part of the homework. He's fairly complimentary of his opponents. Like the worst thing he says is that Ricky Steamboat maybe doesn't get the job done. But as he gets more and more successful, he just starts talking about how good he is and how nobody can measure up to him. And then we actually see him wrestle and you're like, oh, he's just an opportunistic coward. And you so badly want to see somebody throw that back in his face. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really makes people want to see Magnum get his hands on Tully is that in this match that we saw, uh, this match with Dan Spivey, Tully is the United States champion. It's a couple of months after he was TV champion. He's moved up. And the person that he defeated for that U.S. championship was Magnum T.A., He clocked Magnum with a quote-unquote foreign object and pinned him. And then, in classic Tully Blanchard fashion, refused to give him a rematch. (laughs) Because as he says, I already beat him. Why would I give him a rematch? I already proved I was the better man. And of course, after claiming that he's the better man, goes on to have all of these super shitty defenses where he has to cheat like a motherfucker to beat the worst guys they can find. No, you know, apologies to Dan Spivey, but you know, if you're, if you're the number, you're the U S champion, you're like the number two or three guy in the promotion. He shouldn't have to struggle to beat Dan Spivey. You made, you made the good point that a great heel cheats to win. But a great heel shouldn't have to cheat to win against the worst guy on the show. You know, he should be able to win clean against a can. And he totally would have lost to Dan Spivey here if he didn't cheat. So, I guess now is a good a time at any to talk about Tully Blanchard's role within the Four Horsemen. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Four Horsemen before on the show. I don't think in any of your episodes, right? No. So, the Four Horsemen were the lead heels of the NWA. And that's where we are uh, this week, by the way, everybody. This is uh, the NWA, the American South in the 1980s. They were originally Ric Flair, Arne Ole Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. And that fourth horseman spot kind of gets moved around, you know, Lex Luger and Barry Windham and Sid and a whole bunch of guys. But Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson were originally the tag team guys. Rick was the world champion, and that left Tully to be the U.S. champion. The sort of second in command, if you will. 
But it also marked him as like the lesser version of Ric Flair, which is kind of what he was. There was nothing that, you know, we're talking about how great Tully Blanchard was, but there's nothing that Tully Blanchard could do that Ric Flair couldn't do better and didn't do better. I mean, that's a pretty fair statement, right? I mean, Ric Flair would uh, would come to the ring in his $10,000 robes, and Tully Blanchard would come in with, you know, slightly less impressive robes. Ric Flair was the world champion. Tully's the U.S. champion. Ric Flair would have you know, a woman on either arm and Tully Blanchard has has Baby Doll, who's this this woman that he calls the perfect 10, but, uh, you know, she's not an unattractive woman, but she's not, like, a supermodel. And she's also, like, a head and a half taller than him. (laughs) And it's... uh, What's that? You also got yeah, she had this whole weird thing with Dusty Rhodes where he was mistreating her and then Dusty Rhodes like came to her rescue and then she was on Dusty's side and then she betrayed Dusty to, t- <laughs> to side with, to, to side with uh, Tully again. So Tully Blanchard is out there saying that he's the best, but he's visibly not the best. He's not the best at anything. He's not even the best at being uh, a scumbag cheater because... Nobody's going to be the best at being a scumbag cheater when they're on the same show as Ric Flair. And he's not just on the same show as Ric Flair. He's on the same crew as Ric Flair. You have to imagine how frustrating that has to be if if your goal as a performer is to be the world champion. What do you do when the world champion is a better version of you? <laughs> well, that is in fact what he did. He and Arn wound up leaving to become a a, a pretty fantastic tag team alongside uh, the greatest manager who ever lived, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, you know, Tully has this uncertainty. You know, he wants to be the best, but he clearly can never be the best. And on the other side of this rivalry you see Magnum T.A., who, you know, despite your misgivings about his star power, absolutely was a draw. Like, people were nuts for this guy. He was, in at this point, in 85, he is as popular as Hogan ever was. You know, in 85, this is... Yeah, or a sting. Yeah, yeah. This is like a couple of months after the first WrestleMania. You know, WWE didn't really complete its takeover until like WrestleMania three. Like that's kind of the final blow when the whole wrestling world has to admit, just like, okay, WWE's paradigm is is what we're doing. We're going forward with this model, and that's when you see the NWA start to consciously model their style after WWE a little bit more, you know? Mm-hmm. That's when you start to see things like, you know, WWE has the Ultimate Warrior and WCW has Sting. And 
in at this point in 85, they still feel very different. They still feel like different interpretations of what pro wrestling is. And Hulk Hogan in his sort of uh, celebrity-driven cartoon world in 1985 is almost exactly as popular as Tully Blanchard in... I'm sorry. Is exactly as popular as Magnum T.A. in his more gritty, smoke-filled, local arena sort of world. Does that make sense? And because of what a huge star Magnum was, everybody knew. He was one of those guys that you look at and you're like, okay, he's going to be world champion someday. This is the guy that's finally going to take down Ric Flair, who was like the eternal champion. You know, Ric Flair's major rival in the 80s in the NWA was Dusty Rhodes, but Dusty was a couple of years older than Flair. He could be a rival to Flair, but he was never going to be the guy to overtake him. You know, to finally dethrone him. But somebody like Magnum T.A.? Yeah. It made sense. And for that to happen, Magnum also had to move up through the ranks and work his way up through the horsemen. And so that leads these two guys together. They have this match. Tully Blanchard cheats to win and then refuses to face Magnum ever again. And in the coming months, Magnum is still destroying people. He's smoking these guys in 10 seconds and demanding that rematch, demanding that rematch, demanding that rematch. And what he's essentially doing is he starts to cut these promos where he he calls Tully Blanchard a coward. He essentially contradicts him because Tully is out here talking about how tough he is and how brave he is and how skilled he is, and Magnum comes out and calls him a liar and says, it doesn't matter what you say, everybody can see what you do and what you are. And he essentially backs Tully into a corner where he has to put up or shut up. Because after a certain point, he realizes that nobody's listening to what he says anymore. Nobody's buying his preferred narrative. This idea that he has that he can just sort of move on with his life and leave Magnum in the rear view isn't going to work. Magnum is not going to stop coming. So instead, Tully goes for broke and the match is set. It's a rematch six months later, six months of avoiding him, paid off in a steel cage I quit match. These two guys locked in this cage together. We will know at the end of this night who the better man is. There's no way around it. There's, you know, there's no way for Tully to weasel out. There's no way for him to be disqualified. There's no way for him to say that it was unfair this is it. This is definitive. And they really knock it out of the park. I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm excited. <laughs> how, how did I do? Did I do a good job of selling this match? Yeah, you're a regular Paul Heyman. <laughs>
All right. So uh, do you have any other questions about this uh, or, or thoughts about the homework, this rivalry, Tully or Magnum? This is the U.S. championship. Um, dear God, the NWA had so many fucking titles. Well, it's because the NWA wasn't really a promotion. It was like a governing body of independent promotions that recognized the single world champion. So that meant that this match is technically being promoted by Jim Crockett Promotions which was, you know, in the Carolinas. That's where they were based, and that is where the world champion generally was. Ric Flair would show up on their show, but technically he was also the world champion in uh, Georgia and in Virginia and Maryland and and all over, you know? Puerto Rico, Rico, Japan, uh, Mexico sometimes. All these places recognize one world champion, but they're also going to have a regional champion who's the top star there. So that's why you can have something like um, you can have in the same promotion, quote unquote, you can have a United States champion and a North American champion, and they're not the same guy. (laughs) Uh, Magnum TA was both of those at one point or another. But in this case, this is for the NWA United States Championship. It's the number two championship in, at this time, still probably the most prestigious promotion on the face of the earth. And essentially, whoever wins this match is positioned as the de facto number one challenger to the world champion. So there's a lot at stake here. Y'all ready for this? Let's do it. Terry Allen. All right. <laughs> Terry Allen. All right. In three, two, one, go. So uh, this is uh, Starcade in Atlanta, Georgia in... Uh, I don't know if this is Thanksgiving or, or around Thanksgiving of 1985. And we have here uh, our announcer. Oh, look at the... Uh, is that a young Earl Hebner as the ref? I don't know. I missed it. I don't know, but we're getting the, we're getting the introduction here of Magnum. And what I wanted to say before is that uh, the ring announcer says, you know, from Virginia of each Virginia... The wildly popular Magnum TA. Like, that's not his nickname. Like, why do you why do you have to say that? Like, that's not neutral. It's to promote him, man. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't say anything like... Look at... First of all, look at the look in his eyes. In uh, Tully's eyes. He's terrified. Mm-hmm. But when they... They didn't say anything about how popular Tully was or how prestigious he was. They said, he's accompanied by the Perfect Ten baby doll. So the compliment they come up with for Tully Blanchard isn't even about Tully Blanchard. All right, so first of all, you see Tully standing off to the corner, and he was in the darkness. Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. The spotlight is falling on Magnum, and Tully's sort of back in the dark. 
Paul's really happy. Yeah. So we lock up, collar and elbow to start. Magnum gets pushed to the corner. <laughs> and the first punch knocks Tully on his ass. And first of all, that should tell you something because we have seen a lot of matches. And when I say we, I mean you and I and all the other fans who are watching this in 1985. We've seen Magnum beat guys in one move, but he doesn't want to beat Tully Blanchard in one move. He's got to break him. So he didn't go for that suplex. Instead, he went for that punch, and now he's chasing him. Cuddling. <laughs> Cuddle Tully. Yeah, Tully had to had to fight his way loose as as Magnum had him on the ground, and Tully rakes the eye. And now in European uppercut, Tully's in control after taking a cheap shot. Uh, if you're if you're turning this into a drinking game, do not take a drink every time Tully takes a cheap shot. You will die. <laughs> See again, as soon as they're as soon as they're on equal footing and throwing hands, Tully is rocked. He can't stand up to Magnum toe to toe. It's like Magnum doesn't even feel it half the time when Tully hits him. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Throw the ropes into the cage. I know. I love that. It's such a it's such a, a great little detail, right? And now that allows uh, that allows this little this little moment where he gets punched and Tully turns around to try to escape out of the ring and finds himself locked against the cage. It's sort of a, a nice illustration that there's no escape, right? Mm-hmm. Because what in that Dan Spivey match, every time he was in trouble, Tully escaped the ring, and this time he can't. Uh, Tully back in control after another eye rake. And uh, all of the eye stuff is going to uh, come into play later on, trust me. Uh, throwing, uh, throwing Magnum against the cage there. Well, that's surprising that Tully was the first one to throw Magnum into the cage. Yeah. Yeah, you would think normally that's a, that's a babyface thing to grab the heel and, and hurl him into the, into the, the chain link. Because it's such a satisfying visual. So you're right, it's interesting that the heel would do it here. <laughs> so, uh, Tully ha- has him in this, uh, this reverse chin lock, and Magnum powers out. So, here we get this sense that Magnum can... <laughs> Well, he, he he needs him in the uh, in the ribs anyway, so so this kind of gives us the idea that anything that Tully can do to Magnum, Magnum can power out. He's tough enough. And then, oof, look at that nasty looking snake eyes. Drops Tully throat first on the top rope. Nothing that Tully has been able to do to Magnum has seemed more than a minor inconvenience to him. So, here again we have uh, the trading of hands. And again, 
Tully uh, drops to one knee. Oh, but Tully is smart. He does have the a considerable edge and experience against Magnum. You know, we didn't mention this, but Tully is a second-generation wrestler. His father, Joe Blanchard, was a big star in Texas in the 50s. So, you know, he's been around wrestling his whole life. He knows uh, tricks and shortcuts that somebody like Magnum just isn't going to know. One of which was that uh, that little move where Magnum was coming after him and he just grabbed Magnum by the front of his tights and whipped him face first into the, uh, into the steel. Using his own momentum. Yeah. Yep, using his own momentum. And Magnum wasn't uh, necessarily aware of where he was and the many dangers that he could be in. Oh, and uh, now uh, Magnum hurling Blanchard into the uh, into the cage, shoulder and face first, and that's such a smart move because if he immobilizes that arm when he throws him into the into the steel, he can't protect his face, and indeed, Tully is split open. Uh, and he's like Tully's trying to do that same move where he grabbed him by the tights, but this time Magnum blocked it. Tully doesn't seem like the kind of guy who is uh, who is unfazed by the sight of his own blood, you know. Tully may be smart, but he's also a panicker. And look at that—he's punching him right in that same shoulder that he's he rammed into the cage before. And uh, it almost looks like Magnum is shooting for a pin here, but uh, as we know, this is uh, an I quit match, so no pinfalls need apply. There's another eye rake. <laughs> yeah, another eye rake, but uh, this time Magnum is also bleeding. So we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, a bite or a scratch, or maybe Tully even had a razor blade concealed in his in his wrist tape or something. But uh, the fact remains that both of these guys are bleeding now. That's a pretty good move. Yeah. That uh, sort of leaping forearm strike to the gut. Ooh, solid kick to the head. So in an important way now, the playing field has been leveled visually since both guys are bleeding. You know, if Magnum weren't bleeding, we might be tempted to think that this was not going to be a close match. And now Tully attempts to end things for the first time by grabbing that microphone. Magnum, of course, doesn't want to quit, so instead he's just going to bash him directly in the open wound with that steel microphone. And now grinding uh, the steel, uh, what would you call that, cross-hatching? Mm -hmm. The wire covering on that microphone right into his open wound? Of course... Magnum's still unwilling to quit, so Blanchard is just raining blows down on him. Directly on his open cut. Directly on his open cut, yep. And, uh, again, going for a pin before realizing it, you can't. Instinct taking over briefly. And now, uh... A flapjack in the steel cage. Yeah. 
Tully climbing the ropes now. Um, some cage matches can be won by escape. This one cannot. So uh, just a, a jumping elbow strike to the head there. Yep. And Magnum's really focusing on the arm. Yeah. Uh, Tully again asking him to quit. There's no quit in Magnum, of course. Screaming, say it. Yeah. And Tully, uh. Ooh. Nobody lands elbow drops like that anymore, huh? Mm-mm. You can tell that, like, landed directly on the ribcage. Yeah. Push all the Yep, and he missed, uh, he missed the second one. And now Magnum is back on his feet, which historically has been very bad news for Tully. <laughs> Again, one punch and Tully is knocked for a loop. He just can't throw hands. But oh, this time uh, another cheap shot, it looked like. Maybe uh, it was almost like a desperation uppercut or something. It was enough to knock... What's that? That Ricky Steamboat backfist. Yeah, backfist was enough to... Just knock Magnum back. Now Magnum has that uh, has that microphone and is asking Tully if he wants to quit. He does not. You can. Don't quit matches anymore. No, they have uh, submission matches now. Especially with like this kind of type. I remember um, Rey Mysterio and Chavo Guerrero having one. And it was just like, do you give up? No. And then, like, that was it. They would move on. Like, Tully and Magnum are screaming at each other, give up, and Tully's just, like, screaming. Right. The uh, I mean, this is sort of a... Oh, look at... And Baby Doll sort of is an audience surrogate here, just horrified. Yeah. And there's so much blood. So much blood on the... Look at that. Just clawing at Magnum's open forehead. They're both clawing at each other's open foreheads. It's grotesque. I'm the eyes again. Yeah, just look at how much blood there is on the mat. Um, this is sort of a close cousin to the uh, the submission match that we did last time, the uh, the Bret Hart Steve Austin one. Mm-hmm. But the the introduction of the microphone of these two guys screaming at each other, I think, really brings it to a different level. It makes it really personal. Yes, it absolutely is. And uh, look at that. Magnum can barely get to his feet. This isn't a state we've ever seen Magnum in. We've never seen oh, a nasty kick to the face. We've never seen Magnum this hurt before. You know? Magnum is a guy who wins his matches in 10 seconds. Oh, and uh, another cheap shot. But are there really cheap shots when you're fighting for your life? Again, you'd think he would stop trying to lift up Tully, or he would stop trying to lift up, oh, man. <laughs> a Manhattan drop, a top rope dick attack from, uh, from Tully to Magnum, and again, just 
stabbing him, like just a vicious stabbing motion with that microphone and now almost forcing the bloody microphone into his mouth to try to get him to quit. These aren't the like new microphones where they have like the, the oh, foam on it. There's no styrofoam here, no. This is pure metal cheese grating. Yep, another another one of those nasty uh old school elbow drops. And another nasty old school elbow drop. He's just hammering Magnum here. And now uh, attacking his leg. And now throwing the referee. <laughs> Not that he needs the referee. Um, do? Yeah, well, there's no disqualifications here. And he's got the microphone. Oh, and look at this. Baby Doll has thrown him a wooden chair. He throws the chair on the ground and retrieves a wooden shard. Kicks the referee again. <laughs> Gives him a little Sparta kick. And now is trying to fucking force a shard of wood into Magnum's eye. Jesus Christ. This is... Oh, he's got it in the forehead. Ah. This is... There's so many callbacks here, right? There's, uh... The eye attack, desperately scrambling on the mat, and Magnum slowly, slowly powering out. And he... Until he's back up, but Magnum kicks him again, kicks him again, kicks him again, and wrestles that shard out of his hand. And now Magnum has it. Ah! And just jams it into his forehead. Jams it into his forehead, and he's just... There's no way Tully can't escape. He's got a fucking shard of wood in his forehead. And the microphone... We don't We don't even need the microphone. Everyone in the arena could hear Tully Blanchard quit. Didn't even need the microphone. There, Magnum T.A., New United States champion, and there he stands over Tully Blanchard. Who look at his body language? He's broken. There's nothing left of Tully Blanchard right now. Magnum stands over him with the shard, thinks about hitting him with it again, and he sees what this quivering mess that Tully Blanchard has become. Drops the shard, takes his championship, and walks out. stopping to like high five any of the fans or like pose with it or anything he's just kind of walking out sort of like it was a job yeah this was almost like he's not proud of himself yeah this was absolutely a we saw a little bit of celebration like once Tully quit he threw up his arms but he's not happy about what happened uh that's the end of the match by the way I think it's fair to say that Magnum TA went to places in this match that he didn't want to think he could go. The Tully basically brought out of him out of necessity. Yeah, brought the worst. And it, not just, you know, in, in multiple ways, because Tully brings the worst out of him. You know, being in the ring with Tully Blanchard makes Magnum TA into a more vicious person than he wants to be. And in order to 
avenge all of what Tully put him through these long, long months, Magnum goes to a very dark place. And I don't think he thought he would go there. And I think that's just about the perfect conclusion to this match and this rivalry. You couldn't write it. You couldn't write a better ending. No, that was actually really good. I know it's crazy, right? And the the blood and the only thing that 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 probably lessened the impact for us is that you can't hear the screaming, which is going to sound horrifying for me to say, <laughs> but it does add a certain element when you can hear. You can hear Tully just scream, No! No! And then at the end, Yes! 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 He's so out of it, he can't even say, I quit. He's just screaming, Yes! 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 Because he wants it to be over. Blood-curdling screams. Yeah, it's it's very, very blood and guts, which is our episode title, by the way. Old school pro wrestling. And, of course, you know you know about the uh, the promo that follows this, right? How we get back to, you know, because they're both going to be characters on the show. You can't have Tully Blanchard be humbled forever. Even though he was very visibly humbled in front of the whole wrestling world. This is Starcade. This is the biggest show of the year for the NWA. And he just lost the biggest, most prestigious championship he would ever hold to a guy who was clearly better than him in the most definitive way possible. It was a very clear and definitive humiliation. So, Magnum TA is now positioned to move on and challenge Ric Flair, right? And where does that leave Tully Blanchard? It leaves Tully Blanchard to claim that he was cheated because he never actually said, I quit. He said yes. Perfect. (laughs) Right, and now, for the rest of time, Tully Blanchard can say that he never quit. How perfect is that? That's a perfect move. That's so. That's perfect, Tully Blanchard, to be clearly reduced to like a blubbering, screaming mess of a child, with Magnum standing triumphant overhead. He's just like quivering, and his hands just like begging for his life. And the next week, he's like, "Yeah, but I never actually said I quit, though. So I think I should really still be champion." Top shelf shitheadery. Yeah. Before we talk about what eventually became of these two gentlemen, did you have any other thoughts about the match? It was beautiful in its simplicity. Yeah, it was only 16 minutes long. Yeah, and they didn't... I mean, there wasn't even a body slam. No. no and it, it didn't need it. They, they told a perfect psychological story. Everything everything they did made sense. Yeah, they totally went for the pin exhausted. Yeah. He's mentally afraid. So of course he's going to forget that he has to ask uh, yeah. Magnum if he wants to quit. So everything just, that, that was that was a great match. Yeah, he had uh, he had no idea where he was. He was he was going on instinct. He was panicking. Mm-hmm. And we saw from the very beginning when you see that close up of of his eyes that he knows this is going to go badly for him. You know, when we see at the beginning, you see Magnum and his eyes are just steely and focused. And we pan across the ring and we see Tully and his he's so shifty. <laughs> yeah. He, 
is a guy as a character is just a guy. Um, you know, I always say Ric Flair's character is a guy who's only slightly less great than he thinks he is. And Tully Blanchard's character is a guy who has the confidence or sorry, is a guy who says he's the best in the world and has the confidence of the worst guy in the world. You know? Yeah. He, you always believe Ric Flair. When Ric Flair says he's the best, you disagree with him, but you can see how Ric Flair can justify saying that. When Tully Blanchard says he's the best, you're like, you're full of shit. (laughs) You don't even believe that. And I think that so totally comes across in this uh, in this match. It does. It really does. And there's like you said, there's no no high spots, right? There's no there's not even a suplex. No, the biggest move was just that um, reverse atomic drop. Yeah, which was which was a pretty uh, a pretty swank move, honestly. I would like to see that more, but yeah, um, yeah. They, well, Tully came off the top a couple times with those uh, with those elbows, but. They they actually played it pretty safe. It and, was grounded. Yeah, it, it, it felt like a brawl rather than a match. Right, which is so funny when you think back to how all of this started back in 1984 with Tully Blanchard dressing up like a cowboy trying to play the tough Texas brawler. Mm-hmm. And and here he is. It's like everything everything caught up to both of them. The entire narrative caught up to both of these guys in this one 16 minute stretch. And it just, it's a beautiful crescendo. It's like the final fight in Roadhouse. (laughs) Except uh, Terry Funk wasn't there. Well, Terry Funk wasn't in the final fight at Roadhouse, but man, I always, uh, anytime Roadhouse comes up, I got to be like, Hey, you know, Terry Funk was in Roadhouse. (laughs) And he did an airplane spin. (laughs) All right, so any other thoughts about the match? Um, no. I may have to go back and watch some other Magnum TA. Match. Yeah, there, he's got more than you think he does, right? Yeah. Um, I honestly was also expecting, because I, um, I know Tully's move is the slingshot suplex. Yeah. So I was honestly expecting some sort of slingshot suplex into the steel cage instead. Oh, that would have been cool. If he, yeah. like, he would have to set him up in the corner, right? But, like... So, you know, bounce him off the top rope and then fling him into the cage. That would be cool. Yeah, I was expecting something like that to happen, but he didn't even get to, they didn't even get to the point where, that, that's another point. Not once did each other go for their finish. Right. Right, because, yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't make a guy quit with belly-to-belly suplexes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it was just, it, it felt so different from, and we talked about, how different NWA was from WWE at this point. This is so unlike a WWE match of any year. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so grounded and so brutal and so bloody. And so I don't want to say realistic, but I'll say realistic compared to most pro wrestling right down to when people throw hands, somebody gets the worst of it right away. Yeah. As a weapon. Like, yeah. Yeah, and like the the throwing hands specifically, like a lot of times in pro wrestling, you'll see guys just 
like the boo yay punches, you know? Mm-hmm. Like one guy punches and we boo and then the other guy punches back and we go yay and they do that like they do the boo yay back and forth like 10 times. Mm-hmm. But in this case when Tully punched Magnum, Magnum would react a little bit, but then he would throw his own punch and Tully would drop to a knee. It felt like every move had a consequence in this match. Yeah. Every as as Jim Cornette would say, everything they did meant something. So I guess we talk a little bit now about what became of these two of these two gentlemen, and this is probably the career high point for both of them, unfortunately. Yes. Um, Tully, uh, like you said, would go on to go to WWE and form the great tag team known as the Brain Busters, alongside the also great Arn Anderson and the also great uh, Bobby Heenan. Uh, before he kind of got, I, I think it was I think it was Coke. He got um, got yes. caught on a drug test and uh, almost got pretty much blackballed. I want to say he failed a drug test for WWE and WCW. Uh, I just remember he was leaving WWF and he was going back to WCW because they were going to reform the Four Horsemen. Right, but he left before Arn did. Because Arn stuck around and did a Survivor Series where I think uh, he was replaced by somebody else. Tully was replaced by somebody else in the match. Um, and then when he was going to go back to WCW, he got hit with uh, a drug test and not rehired. And at that point, he had kind of burned his bridges with both major companies and was already in his late 30s, maybe even around 40 and by that time it was just kind of like you know where do you go and his career sort of just petered out at that point um and magnum ta unfortunately is one of the great all-time stories of unrealized potential in pro wrestling because like a year and a half after this, Magnum TA is in a catastrophic car accident that leaves him unable to wrestle or even walk for years and years and years. Really kind of one of the great tragedies in, in pro wrestling. Yep. yep. And the most visible legacy of both of these men is their daughter, <laughs> Tessa Blanchard, who is the biological daughter of Tully Blanchard and the adopted daughter of Magnum T.A., who, of course, went on to marry Tully's ex-wife and adopt his daughter, or at least raise his daughter. It's a heel move. It's a real heel move. <laughs> real heel move. But these two hated rivals are now co-parents of one of the hottest up-and-coming uh female wrestlers on the face of the earth, which is an unexpected thing. Yeah, she created a tremendous name for herself. Yeah, with, uh, you know, kind of without WWE, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. She was in, I think, the first Mae Young Classic, right? Yeah. And she didn't win, but she had a hell of a performance and uh, has gone on to do uh, incredible work in other places most notably in Impact as their current Knockouts champion, and also 
Uh, she was on All In. Yeah, and that was one of the best matches of the night, too. Yeah, and she was definitely the star of that match. She she wrecked those ladies. And when she showed up at All In, which in itself, uh, we got to do an episode about All In at some point, because All In is such a love letter to non-WWE North American pro wrestling. Yes. Um, which includes all of this WCW stuff and all of this NWA stuff and these forgotten legacies. Guys like Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard who didn't necessarily make the biggest impact in WWE, they all showed up at All In. And those two guys in particular both came out and hugged her on the ramp as she went in for her match. Guys like fucking Diamond Dallas Page and Glacier showed up also. <laughs> not not for with anything. Cody. With Cody, right. With Cody Rhodes. Tommy Dreamer, who was uh, restricted to holding the dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I'm sure Edgy Christian just watched and laughed at. Tommy. Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't get a hug either. No. <laughs> But you know what? His hair plugs looked great. Yeah, they did. Good, good for him. Oh, that's a cattail. All right. Um, this has <laughs> been this has been another episode of I Hate Wrestling. I want to thank my guest, Stephen, the Train, Graham. I have thrice been on here. Thrice. So three Peats. Three Peats. Um, triple Crown. Triple Crown. Um, I want to thank Corinne Dodenhoff for designing my logo. I want to thank the Novas for the use of my theme song, The Crusher. I want to remind you, dear listener, to subscribe, like, rate, comment, and review on iTunes and SoundCloud. I want you to visit me at ihwpod.com. I've just reset, uh, you know, I've changed up the episode selection pages. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be very pleasing for your eyes. Um, check out the shop. You can buy bandanas for fat dogs. You can buy T-shirts, mugs, ties, stickers, and buttons. Uh, I also want you to follow me on Twitter at ihwpod, on Instagram at i hate wrestling, and visit me on Facebook at i hate wrestling. Steven, do you have anything that you would like to promote? Um, I'd like to thank myself for the WWE Network. <laughs> you're, uh, you're a prince among men, Steven. Mm. When I, when I, uh, did I tell you that I, I interviewed my dad on one of these? No. I did. When is that dropping? Uh, pretty soon. Uh, pretty, well, what, I, honestly, probably before want? this one. We watched, uh... Kurt Hennig versus Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that. And I and I asked my I asked my dad, "Hey, Dad, do you have anything you want to promote?" And he goes, "Chevy trucks." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right, Stephen. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Mm. Right. Yes. Mm. You know how we finish the show. Yo. What's what is prepared. what's your deal, Simone? Yes, hello. Yes, I love you. Hi. Um Steven, if you were gonna be a professional wrestler this week. Just this week? Just this week. Just one week. Yeah, it's been. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good run. <laughs>
championships in this time. <laughs> real David Arquette situation. I lost my smile. <laughs> Won a championship, lost your smile. One match. It was a very eventful match. What what is your what would your character be, Steven? I don't know, man. How many gimmicks do I have to give you? You gotta give me one every time you're on the show. Observation. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are wearing regular clothes these days, regular as opposed clothes. to what? In the wrestling world. Okay. Podcast, <laughs> I thought you meant just like out on the street. Like, yeah, not a lot of people are dressed as cowboys. You know, what the fuck are you talking about? These days, walking around. <laughs> okay, so you've made the observation that a lot of wrestlers are choosing to wrestle in their street clothes. Mm-hmm. Whether Baron Corbin or Dean or Jen with the jorts. Uh, the the Usos. The Usos, yes, right, right. So uh, maybe I'd be like, uh, you know, kind of like how Spider Man has the villain, the Tinkerer. Maybe I'd be like a, a tailor type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be the one that, like, behind the scenes, like everybody would come to to get their normal clothes, but in wrestling attire. So it's like, it's rip. And, uh, and you know, someone has to shut me down. If we have a match, we can have a, I don't know, like a, a needle on a pole match or something. <laughs> needle on a pole match? Or maybe it's a steel cage match, but it's, it's surrounded by fabric. <laughs> <laughs> a, steel ca- a steel cage where the, the cage is just like woven yarn? <laughs> yeah, like a nice knit. A hell in a felt match. <laughs> Remember when they had that awful uh, Ambrose Asylum match? Like, where it was a steel cage match, but they had weapons hanging? Yes. Maybe it would just be like that. Like, one would be like a tape measure. <laughs> <laughs> you got some string, and maybe a sewing machine in one of them. Uh, a, uh, a mannequin, like a dress form. I, s- I smell Russo all over this. <laughs> Well, in that case, like, the mannequin would hatch and Beetlejuice from Howard Cern would come out of it. Or my mother would be on a forklift. (laughs) (laughs) That, what a twist. Yeah. You're about to win the match and your mother drives down on a forklift and turns the ring over. What a swerve. Dean Ambrose comes out telling me he has a match next and I need to finish his his, uh, pants or something. He's only got the one pair. I could, start a, I could start a feud by going to Luke Harper and be like, you need better clothes. I, I, re, I really want to turn heel, but I can't until I have new pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like this. Right. So that would be mine. I can I can work for all the stars, Kevin Owens. Sami Zayn. <laughs> Kevin Owens, you're just cutting the sleeves off his t-shirts. Cutting the sleeves off and hemming them so they don't tear. Nice hem. <laughs> okay. Small money. Get the eye, got you turkey next. Get the eye, got you turkey next.
yeah. Lanny Poffo was there. Who the fuck? That's going to be the stinger.